I was reading a little Shakespeare in preparation for this morning. They're tragedies or triumphs, aren't they? Every, everybody dies or, uh, or it's funny. In Shakespeare's tragedy, Othello, uh, you've got this loving couple, uh, this lovely gal named Desdemona, uh, sort of the picture of goodness and faithfulness and virtue and loyalty. And she falls in love and marries the dashing Othello, this, this German or excuse me, this general from another part of the world who's got all these great stories. And so they marry. And life is great. And they both got the kind of person they want. It's all good. He loves her. She adores him. Life is good. Yet it's a tragedy. It's Shakespeare, right? So we know how it all ends. And so the end of the story is Othello murdering his wife, smothering her to death. And then, of course, he takes his own life as well. And there's another death or two in there as well. And you sort of ask the question, if you start the story and then go to the end, what happened in between? What happened to this relationship between this loving couple that it goes from sort of life as good as it gets to tragedy? And this is what happened. An interloper, one of Othello's subordinates named Iago, he poisons this relationship. And he does it through the things he says. And some of it's just insinuation. And some of it's slander. But he tells Othello, your, lo- your wife that you think is so faithful and loyal, she's really, she's carrying on an affair with another guy. And I th- I'm just your friend and I think you should be aware of it. And then a handkerchief that Othello had given to Desdemona, his wife, she loses along the way, it's taken. Then it's planted with this other fella. And then it's used as evidence by Iago to show that, yeah, She's faithless. She's untrue. She's really carrying on with this other guy, this lovely young thing that you thought was so loyal and perfect. And so he's incensed. And he confronts her. And of course she denies it. And he he smothers her. And as she's taking her last breaths, her attendant, Amelia, finds her and comes in and says, O lady, speak again, sweet Desdemona. O sweet mistress, speak. Desdemona says, a guiltless death I die. In other words, I'm, I've been killed, I've been murdered, but it's not, none of the, the accusations against me are true. A guiltless death I die. Amelia, oh, who has done this deed? Desdemona, with her last words, her last breath, says, nobody. I, myself, farewell, commend me to my kind Lord, oh, Farewell. So in this tragedy, Desdemona is the picture of goodness and innocence and virtue, and she's the one that is slandered and killed. And what's her response? She could say who killed her, but she doesn't, even in death. She remains this loving, forgiving picture of goodness and innocence right up to the end. And this story of Othello is a great, great parallel to the Apostle Paul. And ask yourself this morning... When you are vilified by others, how do you respond? Now, if it's somebody that doesn't like you and you don't like, that might be one thing. But how do we respond when people that know us and and should know us well enough to know what we're made of believe the worst things that are said about us, things which are not true? How do we respond? What do we say? 
How do we come back? What do we do when our good name is dragged through the mud, where our best efforts are treated as worthless or second-rate? This is something parents often experience from children, often children experience from other family members. This is something that if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. You rejected, you're maligned, not for something you've done. You know, if we've done something wrong and we get it, it's kind of like, well, okay. But when we've done right, we're maligned and rejected, how do we respond? What do we do? What's our attitude? What do we say? What do we do? This is all in preparation to start a journey this morning through the epistle of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, it's uh, sort of one of the most painful and certainly one of the most personal of all the letters in the New Testament. And Paul is writing to a church that he had established. The Corinthian church is a church he started. And people that now reject him were Christians because he had shared the gospel with them. And now he finds himself on the short end of the stick, even though these are the people who should know him, should esteem him, should respect him, appreciate him. They don't, not at all. If you've got a study sheet, and I hope you do, it's hard to do introductions on book because I'm trying to give you a lot of background so the rest of, of these teachings make some sense. And try and say this in a narrative so I don't lose you to the boring details, okay? But Paul's history with Corinth, with this church and with this place, uh, Paul started, Paul's relationship with this group of people in Corinth started in his second missionary journey. There's three missionary journeys. On his second one, he's worked his way up. If you've got your map there on the study sheet on the back, he worked his way up through what we would call modern-day Turkey. And he got into an area called Macedonia. And in Macedonia, there's cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And Paul's practice in each of these places was he'd go, he'd find the synagogue, he would tell the Jewish people who, who were in a covenant with God, right, from all the Old Testament, hey, there's a new covenant you need to be aware of. Jesus was the Messiah, you need to believe in him. And so some Jews would respond well, most didn't. They'd reject Paul and his message inevitably. He'd start preaching to the Gentiles. So that in each of these cities, a church was formed. And every time, of course, he's running, he's fleeing from one city to the next. He's chased out of town every time. His friends, and Silas is with him, and Timothy is with him, and Luke is with him for part of this journey as well, they ship him ahead. They get him out of harm's way by sending him to the city of Athens, a little bit down the Greek, uh, going south through the Greek, the west side there. And if you remember in Acts 17, uh, the name Mars Hill is a name churches and ministries have taken on today because it's a famous speech Paul gives in Athens on Mars Hill where he talks to Greeks about a Jewish guy who rose from the dead. And he's making the gospel as clear as he can to people who don't have a great context for it. From Athens, he goes down south in Greece there, if you've got your map again, hopefully the number eight is big enough for you to see there, to the city of Corinth. And in Corinth, he starts doing the same thing. He preaches to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and a church forms. And along the way, he meets some friends, people like him, Jewish Christians, Priscilla and Aquila. And not only are they like him because they're Jewish Christians, but they're tent makers. And so Paul strikes up with them. He has some new friendships in this new town in Corinth. He strikes up with them. And apparently, he was fearful that the same thing would happen here that had happened in those other towns. 
hey, it feels pretty good for now. I've got some new friends, but I'm just waiting for somebody to kick me in the backside, and I've got to run out of this town as well. But God tells him, hey, Paul, don't, don't fear. Shows up in a dream. Paul, don't be afraid. Uh, I've got a lot of folks here, and I want you to preach away. Have at it. So for about a year and a half, Paul's in this city of Corinth preaching. This is from about 50 to 52 A.D. or so. Uh, Corinth was a, an important city. It's a big place in, in the world and the time it occupied. In ancient times, Corinth was a, a magnificent city that had since been destroyed. But Julius Caesar comes along in 44 B.C. and he rebuilds it. And you could sort of imagine why he would because the place Corinth occupies is on a narrow, very narrow little strip of land. We call that an isthmus. Narrow strip of land, about three and a half miles wide, that connects the Greek mainland with the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Peloponnesian Peninsula. So it's on a very narrow strip of land. Now because of this, uh, Corinth got a lot of wealth because it became a natural trade route. So if you were there in Paul's day, three and a half miles is a short trip over land between two seas, the Aegean Sea on the east and the Ionian Sea on the west. And so ships and goods were portaged over that little narrow strip of land all the time. And so Corinth was a trade route. And so it made a lot of wealth because of trade that went through. Besides being a trade route, uh, Corinth was also famous as a, the site for games that occurred every two years, kind of like the Olympic Games. Not every four years here, every two years. The Isthmian Games. So every couple of years, this city would also attract a lot of people from around the Roman and the Greek world who would come to Corinth just to participate, either as spectators or as participants. And they not only had athletic games, but they also had competitions in poetry reading and rhetoric because the Greeks loved both good stories and good storytelling. And so this was also part of the Isthmian Games. Uh, Corinth in its day was also famous for another thing, and, and that was its sexual excess. Now, you know the truth is, if you lived in the ancient world, in the Roman or what we would call the pagan world, non-Jewish, non-Christian world, uh, pagan temples all over, this was the norm. And pagan temples, when we think of that, you have to associate immorality. Sexual immorality was, was part and parcel of pagan worship. And so prostitution was a huge part of any of the pagan worship. And so this was true in spades in the city of Corinth. Now, sexual excess in their day would have been normal. Sexual immorality was, was normal. But in this city, they were so good at sexual immorality that if you called someone a Corinthian as an adjective, it meant that you were sexually base. That they were so given over to sexual excess that to be called Corinthian was a pejorative. It was a slam. You were like an animal sexually. It was not a good thing. But here was corn. This is the city Paul's in. This is the city he's in. It's wealthy. It's successful. It's a center for culture and the arts. It's a cosmopolitan area. It's got a diverse international population. And no matter which of Paul's letters I read to this church, 1st or 2nd Corinthians, uh, it is the most like the United States today. The city of Corinth and the church there is the most like the United States today. Maybe Revelation 3, you know, Laodicea, I think we're getting pretty close to that one. But Corinth looks a lot like the culture we're in. And part of what was happening 
maybe just like the church here, part of what happened in this church in Corinth was that they still drew deeply from the culture around them. And so when Paul writes to this church, he's writing about problems and ways of seeing life, attitudes, expectations that were straight out of the Corinthian pagan culture. And the fact that they trusted Christ and became Christians didn't mean that they got it. And they were still hanging on to the ways they'd come out of, still tied to. And so that's the genesis for much of what Paul writes to them about. Now, stick with me on this for just a second. Under C, if you have a study sheet, when Paul leaves Corinth, he takes a short trip back to Antioch. This was his home church. He doesn't stay there long, but starts right back through Turkey on what's called his third missionary journey. Now he gets to the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus is another very important city, and he wrote a letter to that same church there also. But he's in Ephesus about two years. And while he's there, he gets a letter, and apparently also some visits from the Christians in Corinth, and they've got some troubles, and they've got some questions. And so he writes them a letter. He writes his first of what appears to be four letters to this church. Now, we don't have this letter, but we know he wrote it because he himself refers to it in chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So that's his first letter. We don't have it. We haven't seen it. That's his first letter. He hears back because even though he's written them, they're struggling with some of the same issues and with some of the same questions. And so he writes a second letter. And this letter is what we call 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is the second letter, 1 Corinthians. Now, after he leaves Ephesus, he goes back up into the Macedonian area, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And he hears that things haven't improved. In fact, they may be worse than they were before. And so he writes, we assume. And a lot of, you know, when you're, you're reading back into these epistles, you're trying to figure out, based on what he says, what had happened. It seems like he wrote a third letter that we don't have. And commentators call this Paul's severe letter. And if you look in 2 Corinthians <coughs> excuse me, 2, <coughs> Verse 4, he says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. That doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians. And then he also says later in chapter 7, verse 8, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter. That doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians either. So it appears that Paul wrote four letters to this church, the first and the third lost to us, the second and the fourth we call 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, the letter, 2 Corinthians, serves a few purposes at least, but one of the major ones is it's an apologetic for Paul, for who he is and what he has to say, because he's been thoroughly rejected, or rejected perhaps by a large portion of this church in Corinth. And he's got to convince the church as he writes this letter, he's got to convince them that he really is an apostle, this church he founded. He really is an apostle. He really knows some things that they need to know, that he has to share with them. This is a church that needs to listen to him, but they're unconvinced of that. And just like the story of Othello, you say, okay, Paul started the church. These folks are Christians from his preaching. And now he's got to defend himself to them. He's been totally rejected. What has happened in between? And there's a couple reasons we know from the letter, 
couple of reasons why Paul was rejected so thoroughly by this Corinthian church. The first is this. Um, this group, maybe like us today, they placed a lot of emphasis on appearance, the appearance of success, outward appearances. And you see this in both of his letters. Outward appearances. The trouble for Paul with this is Paul didn't look good. Paul did not compare favorably with other people in Corinth, both the good guys and the bad guys. So Paul quotes in chapter 10, verse 10, he quotes what's being said about him by these new leaders in, in Corinth, and they said, his letters are weighty and strong. This guy can write. Good logic, good content. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. I mean, he doesn't look like much. And he doesn't sound like much. And remember, this is a culture that loves good speech, good rhetoric, good oratory. And here comes in this little decrepit Jewish guy, physically unattractive, his voice not very good. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody like Winston Churchill played on recording. A guy with a lisp, you know, and you wonder, wow. But he changed the course of the world by what he had to say. Well, Paul was like that. He had great content, but they said, man, when he shows up and you see him, he is totally unimpressive. Not only that, but when he was compared by, to other guys there in the church. So we know from Acts 18, I think it's verse 24 and following, we know that Apollos went and spoke to the church in Corinth. And Apollos was the kind of guy the Corinthians loved because he was a great orator. He had great knowledge, and it says he refuted the Jews as they would argue with them about what he was saying. He could refute them. The Corinthians loved this kind of guy, competed well, probably looked okay, probably had a great voice. And in, he was impressive. Verbally, he was impressive. They loved him. And then Peter apparently had also spoken there because in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that this church has sort of divvied up their their group into the kind of leaders they like to follow. So one would say, I follow Apollos, he's my man. Or someone else would say, no, Peter, he's for me, or Paul. So just compared to the other guys that the Corinthians knew, Paul didn't stack up well. Comparisons didn't serve him well at all. Another thing that was a little odd about Paul, when he served this church, he never took any money from the church at Corinth. Never received a dime from this church. And this apparently irked them. Because in their day, and again, being informed by their culture, it was normal that a great speaker, someone important like Paul was supposed to be, they would be supported by giving simply so people could hear them and listen to them, be mentored by them, hear them speak. This was the norm. And Paul defends Christian leaders being supported too in 1 Corinthians 9. But he said, I made use of none of the rights I have in your case. And from Paul's end, it appears he knew these guys were carnal. He knew they were narrow-minded. And he didn't want to give them any cause to think anything he said or did was based on what he could get out of it personally. So he never received a dime from this church. He was there a year and a half. He wrote four letters to them. He never received a dime from this church. He tells them later in 2 Corinthians, he says, I robbed other churches. I accepted payment from other churches so I could serve you. Worse than that, though, he had a day job. He had a day job. He was making tents. He was a blue-collar worker during the day, 
And he said he was God's representative in the evenings while he was preaching. And this was totally, totally unimpressive to them. He was not impressive in any kind of comparison. The other thing that was going on too, though, was this, that just like Desdemona in Othello, Paul was being undercut by some new leaders in the church at Corinth. So he doesn't compare favorably in person to the others, but he's also being undercut by new leaders who have come to this church in Corinth. We know from chapter 11, uh, Paul talks about, uh, he doesn't identify them very specifically throughout this letter, but he talks about them and these super apostles. It's sort of more by inference than anything. But in chapter 11, when he starts comparing himself to these guys who are claiming much for themselves in Corinth, the church he founded, new group of leaders, we know that they're Jewish. And they appear to be saying some things like this. This Paul guy, this guy that used to be here, he should be more impressive if he's God's representative. Because you know, when God had a representative in the Old Testament, Moses, when Moses came down from the mountain, Paul will talk about this later in this epistle, his face glowed. Moses was a glorious person. But this Paul, just look at him. And not only that, but 2 Corinthians tells us Paul had intended at one point to come to them briefly, go back to Macedonia, come back to them. He changed his mind. And so these guys are saying, you know this Paul guy, I mean, he says one thing and then he does another. You can't count on what he has to say. He's unimpressive, you can't count on him, and he's being undercut, just like Iago in Othello. Paul's being undercut in his absence by these new Jewish leaders in Corinth. So, He started a church. He knows all along this is a carnal group of people. But he started the church. He's preached. They've come to Christ through him. And now he understands they consider him second rate. They don't think they should listen to anything he has to say. So when he writes this letter, how does he respond? He's been thoroughly rejected by the group he started. He's called second rate goods by the people that he has labored over. In fact, he says in this letter, I was like your father. It was personal to Paul. And these people he's poured himself into for a year and a half, and he's written four letters to, more than any other church in the New Testament, not even close. He's been rejected by, so how does he respond when he has something to say to them? How would you respond? How would I respond? So in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul starts, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are, th- who are throughout Achaia. Achaia is that part of Greece. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Timothy our brother, to the church of God at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. Paul starts by, by saying who the letter's from. And he reminds them nicely that he's an apostle. And I don't think this is a boast. or that I don't, The rest of the letter shows us he's not trying to found anything on them here but Paul says guys I've been called commissioned and sent by God and by Christ by the head of the church and so when I write to you I write as God's representative I'm Paul the apostle it wasn't men that made me this it wasn't I didn't choose this for myself I'm an apostle because God made me an apostle and Jesus appointed me he commissioned me as his messenger his representative So when he writes this letter, he makes it clear on the front end, it's Paul, and this is who and what I am. So that's fine. That's a good start. 
But what does he say next? When he's got anything to say to them at all, this, this Paul-rejecting group, what does he say? Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul's not feeling the love from this group. But the first words out of his mouth, once he has identified who it is that's writing the letter, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Spurned, rejected, insulted, maligned. First words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Grace is unmerited favor. God's favor to you. It is on you as a Christian. And he calls them saints, holy ones. God's grace to you, God's peace to you. God's grace poured out on you. God's peace in you. You're at peace with God. God's given you peace in yourself and in the relationships you have with others. God's grace to you and God's peace to you. Paul's first words. I love this. God's grace, God's peace. I'm thinking... Um, if I was writing this church, I'm not sure those would have been the first words out of my mouth. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You know, if you read Paul's 13 letters, they all start this way. Every one of them. Uh, grace and peace to you. Every one of them. All of his 13 letters. Some of them throw in mercy. Grace, mercy, and peace to you. But every one of his letters starts with this same thought. That in Christ, when Paul addresses us, as God's messenger, his representative, he says, you've got God's grace and you've got God's peace. And he says it as a benediction, as a blessing, right on the front end of his letters. And in this letter, he closes that same way. One of the neatest, nicest, clearest benedictions in all the Bible, the last verse of this letter. Same thing again. But I'm thinking, okay, Paul, now if you're just writing Ephesus, let's say, I get it, you say grace and peace. Ephesus, they're okay. Pretty good people, good Christians. But you know, when you get to this kind of a group, 2 Corinthians, this Corinthian group, you know, man, the way they've treated you, the things they've said about you, the things they've done to you, why would you start this way? Paul, what, what allows Paul to have this attitude that the very first words out of his mouth to them are grace and peace? Why can he say this? I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is this. When Paul's thinking about this church in Corinth, this carnal, shallow little group, they're like the culture around them. They still are. They've not been formed in Christ. Their thinking hasn't been transformed yet. They're just like the culture from which God has saved them. Not much difference. But as he thinks of them, and as he's thinking of the things they've said and they've done, the way they've treated him, the way they think about him, he also knows this. He knows that Jesus Christ loves that church. He knows Jesus Christ loves those shallow, Paul-rejecting, so-called Christians. Christ and God the Father love that church. He can't get around that. And he's been called and commissioned by God the Father and Jesus Christ, the head of the church. He can't get around that. Christ loves that church. And as his representative, I must also love that church. I mentioned this last week, but I'll say it again. In our culture, in our day, there's so little difference between the church of Jesus Christ and the culture that it's become popular for people to say, Jesus is okay, it's the church I hate. 
Jesus is okay, but I don't like organized religion. And you know, the problem with that is this. You can't love Jesus and hate what he loves. You can't love Christ and appreciate him and hate or disrespect the thing, the people that he loves. And Paul couldn't get there either. So when he writes to this group that's rejected him, he knows that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, still loves this church. And so he's got to love it too, no matter what they've said to him or how they've thought of him. Christ loves the church, and Paul must also. You guys know, if you're in the church any length of time, you will be offended, you will be wronged, you'll be slandered, you'll be talked against, you'll be lied about. This is in the church. This isn't at the bar, this is in the church. It will happen. Just give it enough time. In the culture. We still bring a lot of our baggage with us, don't we? This will happen to you. One of the things I do when I'm at odds with a Christian, um, I pray for them. I pray for them because I know that I have to forgive them no matter what I think they've done wrong against me. I have to forgive them because God commands me to. And in forgiving them, I free myself to have a right relationship with God and as far as it's possible with them too. So I forgive them and I pray for them so I don't get embittered, so that I don't get filled up with the poison of unforgiveness. I forgive them. And as I forgive them, and every time, and guys, sometimes this is years. This is decades sometimes, isn't it? Every time I think of them and maybe that painful memory comes up, I pray for them again so that my heart is free, so that I'm not dishonoring Christ, so that I'm loving who He loves. And one of the things I do when I pray is I do this. I might say, Father, your child, so-and-so, your son, your daughter, so-and-so, is out of line, or they're thinking wrong, or or they're talking wrong, or they're acting wrong, or whatever. Your son, your daughter. Now, I don't say this to distance myself in my mind from them. I'm saying it to remind myself in my father's presence that he loves that person I'm at odds with as much as he loves me. And you know sometimes don't you just want to call the wrath of heaven down on that Christian's head? But you can't do it. Because God loves them. They're his child. They're loved by God. Their sins have been covered by Christ. God loves them no less than he loves you. Or me. He loves them. So when I pray, Father, your son, your daughter, I'm reminding myself... Lord, you love them just like you love me, no less. Or I might say, Lord, my brother so-and-so, or my sister so-and-so is out of line, I think. They need some help. And I say that because, again, I'm reminding myself in God's presence, that person, whether they've wronged me or not, that person is my brother or sister in Christ. I'm tied to them. There's no getting away from that. So I remind myself when I pray in God's presence, Lord, I know you love them just the way you love me. I can't call the wrath of God down from heaven on a person God loves. And Paul couldn't either. So when these words come out of his mouth, it's grace and peace because I know my Father loves you. And I know my Savior who died for my sins died for your sins too. So no matter how you've treated me, I can't do anything except say, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also knew something else about this group. 
This is parental. He does call himself a father to them in this epistle. Uh, Paul knew they needed him. You know, the truth is they think, you read both, both First and Second Corinthians, they think they've got everything. And Paul does say, hey, God has richly blessed you in all kinds of ways. He says that. But they're not nearly as wise as they think they are. And they're not nearly as knowledgeable or discerning as they think they are. And Paul knows they need him. And so one of the reasons he's bending over backwards in grace and peace is because he knows he's got to convince them they need what he has to give. They cannot grow into the people in Christ or the church. God means them to be apart from what Paul has to give them. And so he's practicing an apologetic. He's defending him, himself, his life, and his ministry so that they'll simply receive from him the things God wants them to have that they're not going to get from Cephas or from Apollos or certainly from these new Jewish leaders. not going to happen. So Paul knows they actually need what Paul has to give, whether they know that or not. Now, you'll see throughout this letter, this is one of the really convicting things for me. Paul's talking about weakness and rejection. And you'll see, as you read through 2 Corinthians, that Paul's life, it mirrors Christ's. Paul's life mirrors Christ. So Paul came to his own, and his own received him not. And Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. And Paul's spoken down of by people that should know and love him, and Jesus is rejected by his friends and his family. And you'll see this theme over and over and over again in 2 Corinthians. And Paul is a living, breathing, speaking demonstration of Jesus Christ to this church. It's great. It's great stuff. So, how do we respond? Guys, let me tell you, this is one of the marks of maturity. And the church in the States, we are not a mature church. One of the marks of maturity is, how do you respond to criticism? How do we respond to criticism? How do we respond to rejection? Whether it's right or wrong, how do we respond? This is one of the key markers of Christian maturity. If I'm criticized, I don't defend myself. I listen. If somebody needs an explanation, I can offer an explanation, but that doesn't mean that they'll buy it or believe it. How do we respond when we're maligned and misunderstood and rejected for all our best efforts and for all our good intentions? How do we respond? Now, when you read 2 Corinthians, you're probably like me. I want to believe I'm Paul, you see, when I read 2 Corinthians. Because normally when we're reading stories and letters, we're the heroes, right? We're not the bad guys. We're the good guys. Surely. We're the good ones. So if there's a bad guy in the story, it's probably not us. But just work through just a couple questions with me as we wind down here. Are we like Iago and these new Jewish Christian leaders in Corinth? Do we poison the minds of others by what we say, by innuendo, maybe by just by something we casually let slip, against others that we're not in good terms with? They're not in our good favor and our good graces. Do we practice this kind of subtle poisoning like Iago did in Othello and like these leaders were against Paul? Do we tell outright lies about others, our peers, our parents, our children, somebody that's offended us? Are we willing to lie about someone else? I know I'm talking to Christians, but the question still holds. Are we willing to lie? to others, to harm someone. They harmed us, 
We're going to get them back. What will we do? How will we respond? How about this? Do we spread information about others that we don't know to be true? Negative information, not praise. Negative things about someone else that we don't know to be true or negative information about others that we know to be true but doesn't need to be declared. You see how this works? Do we participate as the Iagos in Othello spreading poison when we're, where we go? Or even like Othello, do we unwisely, like Othello, believe the worst about people that we have formerly esteemed? And you know, the truth is, we are predisposed to believe bad news more than good news. We're predisposed to believe blame instead of praise. Are we like Othello? Do we, like Othello, harm those Christ loves? Do we believe the worst and then harm, do harm to those Christ loves? Paul, in this letter, and it's a great letter because this is a letter that for me really calls us home to sort of brass tacks, bottom lines. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? How am I doing it? What's my motivation? You see these themes run throughout this letter. How do we respond when we're rejected? Let me close with this story. Some of you have heard this before, uh, but one of my heroes of the faith, uh, read some of his books as a young Christian, uh, is a Chinese, was a Chinese believer in China. Uh, his uh, Chinese name was, name was uh, Ni To Sheng, and he was known in the West as Watchman Ni. And when I thought about an example, I couldn't think of anybody better than Watchman Ni for this example. Watchman Ni became a, a believer, a Christian at a young age, and he was a bright kid, and he learned a lot, and he was mentored early in life. And he took off as an itinerant preacher in China, and he was preaching and seeing lots and lots of people trust Christ, and he planted churches everywhere he went. He, he was, his success early in life was phenomenal. He looked like an apostle. He looked like Paul. Christians, people coming to Christ, churches being planted regularly phenomenal ministry. In fact, they would take his writings, they would distribute his writings, not other people's, throughout China. The church that was tied to him in China was all being mentored through others by Watchman Nee and what he had said. Just this tremendously humble servant. When World War II was breaking out, Nee was in England. And he could have, just like Bonhoeffer in the United States, Nee could have stayed in the West during... World War II, and as you know, the hostilities between China and Japan were terrible. The loss of life was immense. He could have stayed in the West, in England, but he didn't. He went back because the church there needed him. And during wartime, he did something that his followers weren't sure what to make of. He took part of his time out of ministry to go start a secular business with his brother, who was a chemist. And Ni was responsible for the support about, of about 40 itinerant guys and their families. And it was a heavy responsibility. And you can imagine during the war, uh, finances are taking a hard hit. And these guys don't know where their next meal is going to come from. And he feels the burden of it as an older brother and as their mentor. And so with his chemist brother, he starts a pharmaceutical company. Now, this all sounds good, right? I thought it sounded like a great idea. But his fellows don't agree with this. And they say, brother, you're like the guy Jesus said. He took his hand from the plow. He's not worthy of the work. 
you've turned your back on ministry. And in the churches that Watchman Nee founded, he wasn't permitted to speak anymore. And the brothers he had mentored castigated him. They would call him on the phone and ream him out because he was now a half-hearted Christian. He said to one guy, one young guy that he knew at the time, he said, brother, here you are working full-time in this factory. He says, if you go to the meeting and you share anything, they say, oh, you're a great brother. You're growing in the Lord. He said, me? I can do no right because I've started this business. Everything I do now is wrong. I'm half-hearted. I'm not worthy. A guy called him on the phone one time and his wife is hearing his side of the conversation. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So who is that? Well, it's brother so-and-so. Well, what do you have to say? Oh, he's telling me everything I'm doing wrong. Well, was it true? Well, no, none of it's true. Well, why didn't you tell him? And Nito Sheng says, well, if he praises me to heaven... I'm still Nito Shang. And if he curses me to hell, I'm still Nito Shang. I am who God made me. No matter what he thinks, no matter what he says, no matter whether I'm accepted or rejected by them. And the money he was making from the factory was going to support the guys who wouldn't let him speak in these churches. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Paul's rejected. What does he say? Grace and peace. Nito Sheng, Watchman Nee, if you haven't read, read him, he's well worth reading. Against the Tide is the name of his biography and the two best known books that he's written, The Normal Christian Life, will challenge you, and Sit, Walk, Stand is another great book by him, will challenge you as well. Uh, Watchman Nee was imprisoned. He spent the last 20 years of his life in Chinese prison camps and died in June of 1972. He was a contemporary, living, breathing example of Paul living, breathing example of Christ. So that no matter how he was treated, rejected or praised, when he responds to those folks, those, those Corinthians, those people that probably looked a lot like us, when he writes to them, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to grow up. We have a mistaken notion in this life, most of us, most of the church in the West certainly, that you mean our life to be really comfortable, warm and cozy. Everyone will know how great we are. We'll be accepted everywhere. No hardships. Lord Jesus, you were rejected and despised in this world and those who follow you seriously will be as well. And I pray that you'd help us take this mantle willingly like Paul did, like Watchman Nee did. Lord, I pray that when we're misunderstood, we wouldn't be quick to justify ourselves in the eyes of others, but to throw ourselves humbly at your feet and ask for your blessing on us and on those you love as well who might be opposing us at the time. Lord, help us to demonstrate the kind of love you had for us. Lord, when we were not your friends, when we were the villains, when we were the Iagos of this world, when we had nothing to commend us to you, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for our sins to bring us alive to God. Help us to demonstrate and choose to grow up like Paul, like you. Help us to spread your grace and peace to unworthy sinners just like us. In Jesus' name, amen.